When Moses led the Israelites out of slavery in Egypt, he learned the power and the love of God. Join me, Pastor Hook, as we learn lessons from the Exodus and God's great rescue. So we are going to look at the book of Exodus. We looked at the book of Genesis earlier, and Genesis had 50 chapters, and I think it took us 80 or 90, it took us 90 episodes to get through the book of Genesis. The book of Exodus has 40 chapters, but there's some great, great, great stuff in the book of, Gen- of Exodus. And they've made movies out of the book of Exodus. If you are a Jewish person, the one thing that separates you from from the rest of the world is that God came and rescued you from slavery in Egypt through his 10 plagues. And when we looked at the book of Genesis, we called that the backstory to the beginning. Well, what's the beginning? The beginning is the book of Exodus. The book of Exodus is God's great rescue of the Jewish people from Egyptian slavery where God said, yes, you're my people, I love you, and I'm going to rescue you. And he put all the stuff in place to be able to rescue the Hebrews from slavery in Egypt. And it's a fascinating story. I'm I'm sure probably you've seen at some level, you've seen a story about this. There's the great Charlton Heston uh, Ten Commandments movie that, I've watched several times that is just phenomenal. Cecil B. DeMille, I believe, directed that. There's also a animated children's uh, movie. I can't remember the name of it, but uh, it's animated and it talks about Moses, the Prince of Egypt, I think. I think it's called The Prince of Egypt. And that's a great movie, too. So probably all of you know at some level this story about God's rescue uh, from slavery in Egypt, but we're gonna we're gonna take a look at it at probably a different level. We're going to look at it from today's viewpoint, today's eyes, and we're going to spend some time just looking at this amazing story. And as I said, if you're Jewish, this is the number. This is everything revolves around this story: the fact that God rescued you from Egypt. So it's a good story. It's one to, to understand and to look at. And so we're, we're going to go ahead and just begin right into uh, Exodus chapter 1, verse 1. And it reads as this. These are the names of the sons of Israel who went to Egypt with Jacob, each with his family, Reuben, Simeon, Levi, Judah, Issachar, Zebulun, Benjamin, Dan, and Naphtali, Gad, and Asher. The descendants of Jacob numbered 70 in all. Joseph was already in Egypt. I think I'll just stop right there. So these are the direct descendants of Jacob. These are the brothers of Joseph. And just to give you a little bit of a brief history, what happened, Joseph was sold into slavery by his brothers because he had a dream And in that dream, God revealed to him that he would be greater than his brothers. Well, this really torqued his brothers. So he sold, so they sold their brother Joseph into slavery as some Ishmaelites were passing through the land. 
They thought that they'd never see this brother again. But it turned out the Ishlamites ended up in Egypt. While in Egypt, they sold Joseph into slavery. Joseph was an upright character. You could even say that he's a precursor of, of Jesus at some level. He did all the right things and God blessed him by giving him the ability to interpret dreams. He interprets Pharaoh's dreams. Pharaoh was so impressed with this young man that he put him in charge of his kingdom from an administrative level, and Joseph performed phenomenally. He uh, was able to gather. The dream was about that there would be a famine in the land for seven years, or there would be plenty in the land for seven years, and then there'd be a famine. And so Joseph put uh, uh, Pharaoh put Joseph in charge of storing grain during the, the good years, the years of abundance, so that they could make it through the, land, the famine years. And all of that went well. During the middle of that, back in Cana, where Joseph's brothers were, they were hit hard by the famine. They were looking for food, so they traveled to Egypt to get food. They go in front of their brother. They have this great big reconciliation. The brother says, you need to bring dad back and all the family, so dad and the whole family apparently 70, come into Egypt to live with Joseph, who's Pharaoh's right-hand person, his administrative assistant, and all is going well. And so these are the descendants numbered of Jacob in the 70s, and all, and Joseph is already in Egypt. But the story continues on. In verse 6, Now Joseph and all his brothers and all that generation died. But the Israelites were exceedingly fruitful. They multiplied greatly, increased in numbers, and became so numerous that the land was filled with them. So this is a great blessing. They have, they have become a tribe within Egypt, and the God has blessed them. All of the rich, Joseph has died. Jacob, we already had seen, had died. Joseph died. Uh, everybody that was Joseph's brothers, they all died. And we see the, the Israelite tribe getting bigger and bigger, but the initial leadership, the people that came across into Egypt, they have all died. And what happens then is in verse 8. Then a new king, or you could say a new pharaoh, to whom Joseph meant nothing, came to power in Egypt. Look, he said to his people, the Israelites have become far too numerous for us. Come, we must deal shrewdly with them, or they will become even more numerous, and if war breaks out, will join our enemies, fight against us, and leave the country. So this is interesting. We should spend some time on this. If you'll remember, Joseph was beloved by Pharaoh. Pharaoh was so pleased that Joseph interpreted the dream and that he saved Egypt from famine. But Joseph and all his brothers and that king and that pharaoh, they're all dead. And now after several generations, it appears that there becomes some tension between the Egyptians and the Israelites, the Egyptians and the, and the descendants of Jacob. So why would this happen? Well, it probably happened because the Israelites did not intermarry with the Egyptians. They wanted to maintain their own unique identity 
as descendants of Jacob. If you'll remember, Jacob was also called, the, the, another name for Jacob is Israel. And so these are the Israelites. And if you'll remember, the, you have Abraham, who's the father of all this, and he has a son named Isaac, and then Isaac has Jacob. So there's three generations in there. And in that tribe that was this Canaanite tribe, this nomadic Canaanite tribe living in the land of Canaan, they were very, very tribal. They, they did not intermarry with other people. They were very insulated and inward focused. As a matter of fact, when, they were, when Abraham was trying to find a son for, for his, a wife for his son Isaac, he made sure it was from within the tribe. And the same thing happened with Jacob. When he was looking for a wife, it was all within the family. There was a very, very inward focused look at preserving the identity of this great nation that all were descendants of Father Abraham. And they didn't intermarry. And I'm trying to think of a time in the book of Genesis where God told them they couldn't intermarry. And we may go back and look at that because was this a command by God that you shouldn't intermarry with other people of other tribes? Or should, you, or you, should you maintain the identity of your tribe? Well, we know for Abraham and Jacob and Isaac that all of these people were very, very proud of their identity as being uh, children of Abraham. And they wanted to maintain being the children of Abraham. Even when they went over into Egypt, they wanted to maintain being children of, the, of Abraham. If they had intermarried with the Egyptians... If they'd have taken Egyptian wives and their kids had taken Egyptian names, if, if they would have kind of assimilated into Egyptian culture, two things have happened. would have happened. First of all, they would have lost their identity as children of Abraham. It would have been uh, dissolved, diluted into the Egyptian identity and they would have kind of commingled. And then this Egyptian pharaoh would have never gotten rid of them. But they wanted to maintain that identity. And so they wanted to say, hey, listen, we're the descendants of Abraham. We're the descendants of Joseph. Remember, we're the ones that saved Egypt from this incredible famine. And you should look at us as a special people. And we're going to maintain our identity. And we don't want to be intermingling with the Egyptians. It, it, is a, it was a great thing to, to do that. But the the downside of all this is now they become outcast in the land of Egypt. And this is, in my opinion, one of the problems of sin in this world. We love the idea of being identified in a certain tribe. There, there, there are families, we love being in our family, right? We love being, you could say we love being in our church family. We love the identity of our church family. We love the identity of being Arizonians and we allow people to come into Arizona, right? But there are native Arizonians and there are, I'm a native Arizonian. That's why I'm kind of using that example. You're probably native from some other place. Very few native Arizonians born when I was born. When I was born, the population of Phoenix was less than a million people, about the size of Tucson now. So uh, you, when I was growing up, a lot of people were from Arizona, but as it grew from less than a million to what, 7 million now, 
most people or did not grow up in Phoenix. And so they were, they were transplants into Phoenix. So there's somewhat of a pride and identity of, of where you live. Geographically, we can say that we're all members of the United States of America. We call that Americans, although America is the whole entire continent from you know Canada all the way down to the, the uh, south of Mexico. Th- this, uh, this idea of, of being known by a tribe, right, is very, very powerful. But it comes at a cost. And the cost is, is that we want to defend the tribe against other people. So when this is a big debate in the United States today. So the question is, should there be people allowed to come into the United States that weren't born here? And will they assimilate into our culture? And if they're not going to assimilate into our culture, uh, is that a problem? And there are many, many, many thoughts on this. It's um, and it, you know, most of it's political, and I don't want to get political on this. But but a lot of people, it's it's uh, I think it's called xenophobia. Xenophobia is the term that's used for those people that think that people should not come into your country because they're from a different place. And the United States has had a history of not welcoming. We've, we've had a history actually of welcoming and not welcoming. It's, there's been times when we've loved the idea of people coming to the United States to populate it. But then once those people get settled into different areas, they don't want other people coming into their areas. And so you had this great Irish migration that happened, uh, what was it, in the 1800s. And when they were looking for jobs, they would actually post in the window of the job place, no Irish need apply because they didn't want the Irish people coming in. And and right now, I think it's the people coming from South America, Mexico, that there's a lot of people not wanting to come in. Part, part of the, part of the, oh, I guess you could say identity or ethos of the United States is that there have been periods in time when we've welcomed with welcome arms people from different countries. And there have been times when we've kind of closed the gates and said, no, we don't want people from other countries. And this is a big political decision. A lot of politics is around this, and I don't want to get into the politics of it uh, because really, in my opinion, most politicians will use anything that they can to, to further their political cause. And so if, if migration in the United States furthers their cause, they'll welcome it. And if it doesn't further their cause, they won't welcome it. And even knowing whether or not we'll further their cause. I have no idea. But the point is, we always find way. The the problem is, the the deep-rooted problem in all of this, and this includes churches, it includes families, it includes um, tribes like the United States, it includes Egypt and and, uh, Israel, is that at some level, we love our unique identity. We love that we're special in some way, right? Egyptians were special because they were the ones that built the pyramids and they had that incredibly strong Egyptian identity. And then you have the Israelites that were father, that they were children of Abraham. God had come to Abraham and blessed this man with a child long after he was in, you know, his wife was in childbearing age and he created this great nation as numerous as the stars. And then they had this descendant called Jacob who was called Israel. And God told Jacob, I'm going to bless you so that you can bless others. And then Jacob had Joseph and Joseph goes into Egypt. And now you have these two tribes 
living in the same land, but they have two unique identities. And there's really nothing wrong with that. It's great to have a unique identity within another area that has a unique identity. We have this in the United States. We have people, if you go to, uh, to Chicago, uh, you can go to neighborhoods in Chicago. You'll go to a Polish neighborhood. It's like all the people from Poland came and settled in one area in Chicago. And then you'll have other areas. You have a Russian area in Chicago. You'll have all these different areas where it's in the city of Chicago or, you know, the suburbs of Chicago, but they have their own unique identity. And it kind of it's kind of cool. I don't know if you've ever been to... Um, Oh, about, oh, I can't remember how long ago. Our kids, oh, it was, uh, uh, it was about uh, 2004, 2005. Jennifer's grandfather, my, my wife's grandfather, had done the books at St. Paul's Lutheran Church in Chicago um, for, uh, I think, I think he started doing the books when he was 19. He was an accountant. And I think he stopped doing the books when he was 88 or something like that. So I think for a period of 70 years, as a volunteer, my wife's grandfather ran the books at a church. And the amazing thing is, is that my uh, brother-in-law went to visit him once. And down in the basement was all the bills. And it was a legal pad and a ledger, and he was handwriting all of this stuff and adding and subtracting all these bills in the hand ledger by hand without a calculator. And the reason why I know is because my, my brother-in-law went down there and he was adding up all the numbers in his head. And my, brother, my brother-in-law said to him, he said, um, why, why, are you, um, why are you doing this all by hand? Why don't you use a calculator? And he looks up my brother and I goes, too slow. <laughs> he had a, he was a, he had that kind of a raspy voice. It was too slow. He could add up numbers and subtract numbers in a ledger faster by hand than, he, than most people could do with a calculator. I mean, that's just the brilliance of this man. So he uh, did the books for 80 years and he retired from doing the books at this Lutheran church. And so he... Um, was thrown a party. The church threw a party at a restaurant, and he, he, they said, "You can invite anybody from your family. We're gonna, we're just gonna throw a big party for you." And so, uh, we we went to this restaurant. I was there with my wife and our four kids and all the nephew, you know, the cousins and everything. There's probably about fifty or sixty of us in this restaurant. We had a great dinner, and then the church awarded him a plaque, and it was just really kind of a nice deal. Anyway, so um, I mean, when you think about it. Doing the books for church for free for 70 years is a pretty amazing thing. Um, while we were there, we uh, went to a Burger King, or was it a McDonald's? We went to McDonald's in one of the Polish areas of town, and everybody in the Burger King was speaking Polish. The, the servers were speaking Polish. Uh, you know, the people taking the order in the middle of the Burger King were speaking Polish. Uh, the people that were ordering were speaking Polish. We don't know how we ended up in this kind of restaurant. I, it was, uh, but everybody was speaking Polish. And we're like, whoa, this is amazing. Uh, but we went up and we spoke English and the person taking our order was able to speak to us in English and we got our food and we sat down and everybody around us was speaking Polish. And if you've been in some of the, if you've been to Chicago and experienced these neighborhoods or maybe even New York has these neighborhoods, 
You just know these neighborhoods that are very, they're tribes within a tribe. And it's really, really, really cool. But it does cause conflict because people are suspicious, right? People are suspicious of the other. People are suspicious of what are they doing and are they, you know, are they really part of us or not? If you go into the history of Christianity, once once the church began and started operating as a tribe within Jerusalem, this little tribe called Christianity, the whole entire Roman Empire had accepted the Jews. And as long as Christianity was like a subset of the Jews, then the, then the Roman Empire was fine with it. But the Jews said, wait a minute, this isn't us. This is something totally different from us. We don't, they're, they're not part of us. They shouldn't be accepted by the Roman Empire. And then all of a sudden, the Roman Empire looked at Christianity and said, wait a minute, are you true to Rome or are you not true to Rome? Do you bow down to Caesar? You know, are you in bed with Caesar? The, apparently, the Jews were okay with this, but the Christians wouldn't bow down to Caesar. And um, so the, all of a sudden, now they became the outcast and there became friction between the Christians and the Roman Empire. As a matter of fact, uh, Nero, then, when, uh, when he was emperor, started putting all the blame for all the problems that were happening in the Roman Empire. He put all that blame on the Christians, saying, listen, don't blame me for all the problems. It's these Christians, and uh, we got to get rid of all these Christians. If we got rid of all these Christians, all the problems would go away. And so the whole entire Roman Empire turned on the Christians, and they martyred them and killed them and all that. But the Christians wouldn't. They wouldn't release their identity of being in the tribe of Jesus. And I am so grateful that they didn't release their identity in being in the tribe of Jesus. Jesus notices this when he comes into play uh, in a small town in Bethlehem and then goes into the heart of this Jerusalem, you know, mix of Roman Empire and, and, and the descendants of, of Jacob. He said, listen, the, the, all the tribes of the earth fight each other. And they're all fighting for position and jockeying for position and they're suspicious of each other. He said, but what I'm going to do is I'm going to create a different tribe. I'm going to create a tribe that transcends this, that you can be a part of, that you can have an identity of, that you can be proud of, that you can fight for if you want to, but it is not political with the politicians and the politics of the earth. It is completely separate from the politics of the earth. This tribe is called the kingdom of God, and I'm at the head of the kingdom of God. And if you are in my kingdom, you have all rights and privileges and joys of being in my kingdom, but you can exist in any other earthly kingdom, and you can let all the earthly kingdoms do what all they're going to do, um, because if you have to be a part of an earthly kingdom, you have to, you know, you have to live in that system. You've got to even fight for those kingdoms on the earth. You have to be proud of those kingdoms on earth, but there's another kingdom that you're a part of that can bring you more joy, more identity, more peace, more love, more happiness, more Holy Spirit, and that's the kingdom of God. And this whole idea of Jesus creating this kingdom happened because earthly kingdoms just don't live together very well. They're always suspicious of each other. They're always fighting each other. They're always wary of each other. I mean, if you, if you, um, 
you know, if you see somebody that's part of your tribe, let's say, you will do anything. The natural response is to do anything for that person that's part of your tribe. But if it's somebody outside of your tribe, you're very suspicious. You may not be so generous with your time and your talent and treasure to bless that person outside of your tribe. Jesus threw all that out of the window. He said, listen, have an identity in my tribe, but but I'm going to give you a mission. And the mission that I'm going to give you in my tribe is to love the world, right? It's the same mission that Jesus gave Abraham. He said, I'm going to bless you with so many descendants. I'm going to bless you so that you can be a blessing in the world. This is the heart of God. The heart of God is if you are, if you are in a relationship with me where you know that you are my beloved child and that I have blessed you and, and we'll find out that I've rescued you from the, from the hand of Pharaoh in Egypt, I didn't just rescue you for no reason. I rescued you so that you could love the world that that you live in. And this is a precursor. This whole story of the Old Testament that we're going to read is a precursor into the perfect story of Jesus, which is, you know, let's just let's just not even worry about all the tribes. Let's just let's just be firmly established in the kingdom of God and know that we're special because we're a child of God that we have an identity because we're a child of God. And because of that, he's given us a mission, which is to love the world around us. And uh, we can move forward with that. You know, tribalism is great. But, it, but, but our sinful human nature, we're always suspicious of people who aren't in our tribe. And we'll go to war against people who aren't in our tribe. We'll love the people who aren't in our tribe. But uh, we won't love the people that aren't in our tribe. Now, as we become more and more globalized as, an, as a world, as communication increases and as we, you know, transportation, there's a, there's a big, huge company that's going to, by 2024, 2026, is going to have a supersonic airplane. And there's others, too, that you can go from like New York to L.A. in 30 minutes or you can go from L.A. to London in an hour. I mean, these types of things. When those planes, and I believe those planes are going to happen because uh, when those planes happen, that means that you could go to New York or you could go to California to L.A. You could hop on a plane and you could be in the Amazon rainforest in an hour, spend the weekend there in your own little place. And then, I mean, we're going to become a very, very globalized world. And it probably will be that at some point we will have to work together as a globalized world to have some agreements as far as there, there are some on one side of the spectrum that says, let's just have one, you know, one world, um, government. Uh, and at some level that does make sense. But if you have one world government, then you get rid of all the tribes. But I wonder, and probably won't happen in my lifetime, but I wonder that once we kind of solve all this, if, um, if we'll start exploring out <laughs> into outer space and what we'll find out there. And uh, I mean, that's, that's the great unknown, right? That's the great unknown. Uh, and then maybe at that point, you know, the, one of my favorite movies is Independence Day, where the aliens come in and start to attack uh, the world. And so the whole entire world has to pull together to fight against the aliens. Uh, and so then we are one world, you know, we do feel camaraderie with the whole entire world human race because we're, uh, because we're fighting a common enemy. Will that happen? I don't know. Is that biblical? 
Well, God really doesn't say, you know, uh, he says he created us in his image, um, but he didn't say, at least in scripture, whether or not that means that there's others outside of our world. Um, could be, maybe not, that he could have created. Um, maybe we populate other planets and then we, you know, we populated this world and we seem to have tribalism in this world. So if we populate other planets, will we create tribalism there? I don't know. Anyway, those are, those are, um, those are just thoughts going through my head as we come into this because uh, we're going to see that this whole tribalism, while it's a great thing, it causes a problem in the land of Egypt. And so I think we'll probably end it there. And uh, why don't we just go ahead and close in prayer. Dear God, thanks for this time together. Thanks for keeping us safe over the last week. Uh, thanks as we study uh, this incredible book of Exodus and be with us for the rest of the day. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, so 